This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, we've got to go back to Lantana. Of course we do. And meanwhile, we're going to move forward to Sporty's reinventing the intro flight. Also, it's HAI week. And AAPA has big news with 2017 scholarships and some hidden gems. All right. Let's do Hangar Talk, David. Let's do it, Ian. Thanks for joining us on Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, um, we'll start right off talking about, uh, we'll, we'll do bad news first. Okay. We'll get that out of the way. Might as well. Yeah. Um, Lantana, or uh, Palm Beach County Park Airport, uh, by its more formal name. This is, we've talked about this the past couple of shows. Um, we the, have. Yeah, it's uh, it's the Southern White House. It's it's become the past couple of weekends. And I think uh, Donald Trump's been there four out of seven weekends so far. We're yep. in mid, uh, mid-March. mid Yeah, and so it, it was really, uh, you know, causing a TFR issue. Um, obviously, anywhere the president goes, um, Secret Service puts in these these 30-mile TFRs, and, and that has shut down completely operations at Lantana. They are very serious about security. Yeah. It doesn't matter which president we're talking about. Yeah. Secret Service's primary objective is to protect the president. Yeah. And they have to do it. Yeah, they do. Um, and so, you know, the operators down there, it's a vi- if you haven't been down to Lantana, it's a very busy uh, part of the state. Florida, obviously, very busy in GA in general. Um, and so we're talking you know, tens of thousand dollars each weekend. Well, uh, we had one report a couple of weeks ago uh, that said that at the Lantana Airport, uh, $30,000 was lost as a result of one three-day weekend of Trump visiting Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And we also need to note that there are about 250 people that are employed full-time at that airfield. And the annual community impact, and this is what's important to me, is $27 million. That's a lot of money. It really is. Yeah, it really is. And so... We've been working this uh, from a number of angles, um, the state, federal, congressional, um, and uh, the most recent is a couple of weeks, about, a, I guess, maybe a week and a half ago now, AOPA President Mark Baker sent a letter to Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, right. um, and essentially we're, we're a number of different avenues looking for maybe cutouts, or in particular, this letter I think was talking about 
um, maybe some pre-screening. Pre-screening like a gateway airport. Yeah. To make sure security was uh, taken care of ahead of time. And that's not unheard of, too. I mean, yeah. you, you could do, there are gateway airports coming back to the United States from overseas travel. Yeah. And, GA. and now to get into Reagan, of course, you got to do the gateway thing. Good point. Um, right here in our backyard. Yeah. That's right. So there is a protocol established for this stuff. Um, and it seems entirely reasonable yeah. that they would do that. Um, so I don't know. I You know, this, this is... A frustrating issue, and I think it's one that we'll we'll continue to work on and continue to to push on because it seems like, and and this happens everywhere. I mean, it's like we've had these issues at Camp David near us. You know, it's happened. I, I guess President Obama maybe went to Chicago. He did go to Chicago. He went to Hawaii a lot too. Yeah, Hawaii, and so and the Bushes would go to Kennebunkport, Maine. That's or right, Texas. That's right, and really anywhere that the that the president goes on a routine basis, we see this. Um, but yeah, if if this is going to be the pattern uh, weekends, right. that, that's a big deal. It is because it puts a big hurt into flight training, helicopter operations, sightseeing tours, things like that. Yeah. And the coast of Florida is gorgeous. We all know that. And it is conducive to flying because the weather's, although the weather can be very challenging, yes. as you know, uh, most of the time, it, you know, decent days, good for flight training. Yeah. So a couple of uh, legislators met with the Secret Service mm. in the past few days. Yeah. Representatives uh, Lois Frankel and Ted Deutsch from Florida. They met with Secret Service. They were talking about what uh, tenants could do at Lantana to, to make things uh, happen and make it still, you know, keep it secure. Mm-hmm. But I think at this point, there that was a, a no-win situation mm. as of now. Yeah. Doesn't mean the door is closed. It just means that the Secret Service wasn't willing to budge yet. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this is, um, and I, I think maybe we've talked about this a little bit, you know, People have said, uh, hey, why don't you just go to the FAA and tell the FAA, release the airspace. It's yours. You can do what you want. Um, but the FAA, really interestingly, they, I mean, there is a partnership there with security agencies and everything else. Yeah. But a lot of times they defer to the security situation, especially when they're talking about Secret Service. It does make sense. I mean, uh, on the other side of the coin, I mean, we're both pilots. Yeah. And, but on the other side of the coin, I've been in the uh, journalism field for a while, and I know that they are very serious about security in all aspects. Yeah. So I've seen it from both ends. And as a mm. pilot, I sure want to be able to fly there, especially if I have a, a flight school operation. Yeah. I mean, that's my, that would be my livelihood. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it doesn't matter who the president is, it, you know, they do need to be protected. It just happens to be that this is a very sensitive flight training area and, and also for other operations, GA, that are not yeah. flight training. So you, busy airspace. you've photographed a number of presidents, right? I have. Yeah. How many? Do you know? Well, I, 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 don't, I, I don't count them up real quick, but uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to date you there. No, Sorry. I think seven or eight. I mean, okay, uh, going back to Jimmy Carter, wow. but I was just a student when I photographed him. That's cool. And yeah. so, what's um, so obviously you've had to be physically close, what, yeah. security wise. What I mean, you've got a bunch of gear and it's bags. Intense. What uh, do the they first, do? Yeah, well, the first thing you do, and, and for for our podcast listeners who might have gone to an inauguration before, that, similar to that, uh, you basically go through a magnetometer, mm. and uh, your camera gear you have to lay down on the on the tarmac. And uh, and special dogs come and sniff that. Oh wow! And you best make sure that you don't have any knives or sharp objects with you or any co- other contraband. Well, now because I know you guys, you'll you'll carry knives because you're cutting tape and all kinds. We of do, stuff. and so, so you got to remember to take that remember out of your to bag. take them out of your bag. And oh, I wow. have forgotten before, and it has not been pretty. Yes, <laughs> that is have true. Have you been face down on the pavement before? Not quite that bad, <laughs> but uh, I was expecting that to happen, but. <laughs> Fortunately, got out of that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it's quite intense security, and hmm. generally you have to line up. I mean, hours in advance, hours. Oh, wow. If the if the president's going to come at say eleven a.m., yeah, generally press call would be uh, a security sweep at six a.m. and be in place 
be in place at six and leave the area while the dogs come and 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 investigate sniff yeah. the area and then uh, and they're looking for bombs or any kind of explosives basically yeah, yeah. Um, or weaponry and then uh, you come back about an hour or so later and then stand there for about three hours until till the president shows wow. up. And then usually it's a brief opportunity. If, if it's a, an outside event, that's one thing. You uh, needs me to be on a platform. Uh, if it's an inside event, you get hustled inside and uh, hang out near the back or go to the front. It depends on, on how the security procedures are. But it's uh, pretty it, – it's, it's secure. It's timed real well. Mm. And there's not much flexibility. It doesn't mm. matter who the president is. I've seen this all the way back through Ronald Reagan. Him, hmm. is you just don't have much flexibility, yeah. and they do that to keep things tight and secure. I mean, it's you know, it's it could be a wild uh, situation yeah. if it was another way. Yeah. So has it been um, obviously way off topic here, but has it has it changed over the years? Has it gotten tighter? Did you notice much or? tighter? It has. Well, what happened was, if we remember, Ronald Reagan was shot here in Washington yeah. D.C., and the person who I suppose after that did that, they they basically pretend like they remember the news media. Okay, that's how they got very close. Yeah. So it it did change uh, after that. It was very tight for a while, and I was actually up here um, with Reagan for a while back in the '80s, and then not to date myself, but then. <laughs> <laughs> loosened up quite a bit. Oh. I think Obama was a little bit looser. Uh, George Bush Sr. was real loose. I got this funny picture of him fishing on this bass boat, and he held up really? a stuffed bass. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. It was in Alabama. But, uh, but you know, they have a lighter side to them. Yeah. And we see the president as this, you know, very serious person, and they are, but they, most of them have a lighter side to them, and it's, it's kind of interesting to see the behind-the-scenes moments. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's all part of the game. And, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Anyway, back to back to reality, back to aviation here. Yes, but let's uh, do. yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Anyway, so we'll we'll continue to talk about Lantana because I, I think it's going to continue to come up. So all right, so I want to talk about the next story. You uh, you mentioned this Sporties. They've got a new concept for an intro flight. This is really cool, Ian. Um, so Sporties Academy, which is the flight school arm of the online and brick and mortar pilot shop, mm-hmm. they announced a, a new plan for aspiring pilots. And uh, to be able to experience the joys of flight, a lot of folks were having trouble with just like a one-hour lesson. It's like too much, too soon, drinking from a fire hose. It's just hard to deal with. So Sporties came up with a concept that you could have uh, three flight simulator lessons, access to their Learn to Fly online course, which is really a good course. Yeah. And an hour of duel in an airplane. It's five hundred and fifty dollars. So it's a little bit more than one hundred or two hundred that you would expect to begin with. The whole course, you mean? But yes, yeah. that, that the okay. original intro course. Okay. A lot of us took it was like ninety dollars. Yeah, right. The ninety nine dollar intro flight or whatever. But you're getting so much more out of this. Yeah. And the the way it's set up is that it, you know people's time these days. Um, you know, we're always running and gunning. Even my daughter, she's all she's fourteen. She's yeah. all the time checking her her apps on her phone and yeah. running from class to class and you know Google Classroom this and that. And professionals are the same way. Where yeah. our time is is you know money. So they've set it up for four individual one-hour lessons, which is fairly short mm-hmm. by today's standards. And uh, modern consumers are more used to that. So you can think of it as like an extended lunch hour hmm. and then come and grab a, a flight sim lesson. 
And the cool thing about that, I talked with uh, the Sporties Academy president, Eric Radke. Yeah. He told me that the curriculum allows a custom experience, which is a, a cool thing. Like if you're having trouble with one facet of, of skill, you could concentrate on that more. And then it also, that 3D environment is really helpful. You get to work the radios without being under pressure to do all that. Mm-hmm. And it's more encouraging and, and, and people are more self-assured. So it's That's really cool. an interesting, a really interesting uh, program. He said we're going to keep it light. We're going to keep it fun. That's great. That's <laughs> cool. They, you know, Sporties is really interesting. They they are always trying kind of new things. They yeah. um, they've been at really from a lot of schools I know celebrate achievements. Uh-huh. Um, they for decades have um, really celebrated at their school. People come and they have a bell and they ring it and everybody oh, I didn't comes know to, that. yeah when they solo and it, it's it's um, they make a big deal out of it. So and they've. If you if you watch closely, you'll see that they they have programs that come out once or twice a year that are kind of a new take on on old ideas. So finish up programs, yeah. or uh, they go from you know they have a solo program, so it's like just get them to solo, and if they get to solo, they'll keep going. And they're the big believers in recreational certificate. So for right. for a long time, ever since the recreational cert came out, it's like if you go to Sporties, you do you get a you become a recreational pilot first. That's like the entry. Yeah. Okay. And then you add on the private later. And oh, nice. Yeah. So they're really focused on these. Um, like a building block. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they think it's very successful. That's um, a real good way of doing it. Plus, you know, financially, a lot of us look at it and it's just a, a it's a tall leap. Yeah. Right. You know? If it's like, hey, come in and sign up for twelve thousand dollars worth of flight training, you think. Oh my gosh! There's no way, right? Right. Yeah, but it's like, hey, come in, pay 550 bucks, and you get this cool experience. And that way, you yeah. either, you you'll either know you like it or you don't. That's if right. You do like it? Heck, you can notch that right off and keep going. Yeah. The um, I know at least one other school, and I I am sure there are others, but the um, the one school that won our best flight school of the year award a couple of years ago, AeroVenture Institute, uh-huh. up in Massachusetts. They do something similar. They, I think, they call it like a Top Gun program. Oh, nice! And so they'll they offer that whatever ninety nine dollar intro flight, mm-hmm. and they find that people who take that, they're sort of, um, I mean, I don't want to sound derogatory, but they're tire kickers. You know, they there are people who want to go for an airplane flight, yeah. let's say, and which is which absolutely is. Uh, we're all about thing we're to all do. about fun the stuff and you can fly. Yeah, the APA is right behind us. On yeah, because yeah. who knows? Maybe one of those will turn into a pilot someday. But they they found that. For a more for somebody who knows they want to do it or has more yeah. interest, they sell. I think they call it a Top Gun program, mm-hmm. and it's it's really neat. It's uh, the fl- uh, there might be two flights and maybe three sim flights or something like that, but it's like eight hundred bucks. That's a little bit more than sporties, but it's on the same it's on the same lines where you're not yeah. emptying your entire bank account. Yeah, right off the bat. And let's face it, people's uh, lives change, their commitments change, and you know if you have children, and baseball or soccer season starts, and you got to rearrange stuff plus the weather. Yeah, you know, um, so that actually gives people some more time. They they do some simulator training as well. That's right, and they give them a T-shirt and give them a call sign and a logbook, oh, nice. and so they feel like they're That's part of the community, cool. right? Oh, I love that. But you know what? It it blew my mind because you, I always thought. And I think a lot of people think this. They they think, well, the reason that we don't have more people finishing flight training is because it's too expensive. But you find that is absolutely not the case. It's, it's that it's not the money so much as the other other commitments. Yeah, and it's the other commitments. And so they find that um, people will pay the eight hundred bucks, and that the conversion, so the yeah. people who finish that course and then move on to full private, is very high. 
because it's like, hey, I'm invested. I love this. I really have an idea I've of what gone this, this is far, about. Yeah. And I know I like it. They keep going. Yeah. This will also lead us to a, another discussion that we'll have on today's podcast yes. about the scholarships yeah. and the hidden gem. Well, let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so so people are thinking about you know how to get flying for free. Yeah. They should be advised that as of March 1st, AOPA opened our 2017 scholarships. And now these programs, there's basically two programs. There's one for, for I would say, for college, or let's say for students. Okay. And there's one for other folks who are like high school to adults. Okay. And so for all facets, you can apply for AOPA's scholarships. Hmm. Okay, so we offer... Two different uh, programs. Yeah, two different programs. Essentially, I know it's a little confusing. Uh, one is anybody, really, right. over what, anybody what, at all. who can fly, right. who's eligible. And then one is for high school kids. High school flight training scholarship. Yeah. The high school flight training scholarship program, that's 20 flight training scholarships up to 5000 No, of $5,000 each. Awesome. $5,000 each. Wow. Which is eligible high school students. Way there. That will actually yeah. get you through through solo for yeah. sure. Yeah. And depending on where you are and what part of the country, it might it might Most also complete you. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Those applications will be accepted until May 19th. So okay. winners, you know, you'll be notified in June, mm-hmm. but you'll have much time. So yeah. open in March, get it going. You got to be 15, 18 years old. So basically college age students. We should also. Thank uh, generous donations to the AOPA Foundation, which mm-hmm. helps make this happen. Yes. So that's the high school flight training scholarships up to $5,000 each. Okay, cool. But there's more. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so the AOPA Foundation flight training scholarship, that's for anyone. Mm-hmm. And the scholarships range from 2500 to $5,000. Cool. So that is the difference, I guess, the yep. threshold. Yep. And uh, the deadline for that is May 31st, and the winners will be announced in late June or early July. Okay. And, you know, we've written about folks who have applied for and gotten the foundation flight training scholarships. And yeah. I remember reading about, you know, a couple people that were in their 50s last, uh, last year, and that helped them go all the way, you know, complete yeah. their training. I remember not one. Too, n- never too old to start. That's right. Yeah. I remember one a couple of years ago. It was, oh, God, it was heart-wrenching. It's like, I remember reading her application. Um I think her husband had died and uh, she was like sort of looking for a purpose and, um, and she was relatively young. I mean, it was not, you know, so she lost her husband early and she went up for a flight, like with a friend and found that this was an outlet and uh, the scholarship helped her finish. And it's it's really neat. It really is a quality of life thing. And then you meet new people and uh, you, like we talked a minute ago uh, about sportage program, it gets people more Mm self-assured, you know, and uh, being a pilot is not something everyone can do. And if you pursue it, that's really cool. Yeah. And you're one of just a select few, you know, relatively speaking. So I think it gives you that personal satisfaction as well. Yeah. It's a real neat thing. It is cool. So one other thing we want to plug. Um, yeah. So hidden. scholarships is you haven't gotten a certificate yet. We're going to help you get there. But let's say that either you're already certificated or it's like you want a great experience. We got this contest running right now. Oh, which this is I'm excited. Who was thing? Yeah. yeah, this is really cool. It's called the Hidden Gem Contest, and so it's aopa.org/slash/hidden-gem, and um, and Jim is. G-E-M. G-E-M. Yep, G-E-M. Not so, like as in, gym to the, not like we're working out. Yeah. We're finding <laughs> yeah, not the diamond, gym. In the, diamond in the rough, Jim. Yeah, that's diamond in the rough. That's right. So this is super, super cool. That This um, goes along with our Destinations Month in March. Uh-huh. The deal is you, this is much easier than applying for a scholarship, by the way. Yeah. So everybody should do this. Come to this website, fill out some really basic information, tell us about your hidden gem. 
So you're, you're, you're cool place. Your secret stash. Your happy place. Right. Um, if it's your home airport, a cool backcountry strip, a lake, whatever it is, mm-hmm. give us three reasons why you think it's super cool. Yeah. Upload a photo, or you can do a video link, uh-huh. and you could win. And uh, and what do they win? Ian? What do they win? This is the best part. It is. Cool. Um, so there's going to be two winners. Can I, first of all, can I apply for this? No, you cannot. I want to win this trip. <laughs> you will have to quit okay. in order to be eligible. Oh, bummer. Um, so <laughs> there are going to be two two winners. This summer, mm-hmm. we will fly you out to Idaho and Wyoming. Oh, if, if pilots have not been to those two meccas of backcountry aviation, they owe it to yeah. themselves. You're going to be flying... With the factory guys from Aviat in oh, a Husky. A Husky, super cool plane. Um, super spend, tough Husky. That's right. Um, spending a long weekend, essentially bouncing around the back country and, uh, with an instructor and staying at these private sort of out-of-the-way that are only open to members and, and these winners' lodges. Kind of like lodges and ranches out there yep. in the back country of Idaho yep. and Wyoming. Behind, near the Snake River, behind yes. the Tetons, near yes. Yellowstone. yes. Oh, man. Super, super awesome. <laughs> Maybe they need someone to photo document this event. Well, actually, if it's, a, I don't know, if it's a carrot uh, to, to help you make sure that you go and you enter, um, Dave Hirschman, AOPA's Dave Hirschman, yeah. uh, who has been to some of these places, will be going along. Oh, he's a, he's a good person to travel with. Yep. He's so you get to hang out with Dave yeah. and, uh, and one of our photographers and uh, just have an awesome time. And so everything's paid for the airline out there, the flying, the meals. Uh, and all you have to do is go and tell us about your hidden gem. That sounds easy enough. The hidden gem and a couple of pictures, a video, three reasons. Yeah. And identify the, the spot. Now, wh- I'm going to play devil's advocate. Yeah. What if I have a secret spot I don't want anyone else to know about? Well, then you're not going to win. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> got to share it to win. Yes. But, you know, what's more you fun? got to tell us about it. What's more fun than sharing aviation with other folks who, yeah. like, who like to do aviation? Yeah. Yeah. Get Absolutely. some more aviators out there. And that's part of our... And that's some you know some of the stuff we like to do get more people flying. Yeah, you can fly. Let's do it. Let's get out there and, and have a reason and, and go somewhere. Yeah, that's right. So please enter aopa.org/slash/hidden-gem. All right, that's a nice one. Cool. All right, so let's keep going. Um, gamma. I want to talk about the the year-end gamma numbers. Okay. I realize it's March, um, but gamma at the end of February every year comes out with their year-end previous year-end uh, shipment numbers. Right. So general aviation looking at the health of general aviation in, in general. Yeah, looking at the manufacturer numbers. I tell you what, you want to you want to guess well, what they were? They were not. Uh, they weren't as strong as we would have hoped. Yes, they were down a little bit. Yes, but all in all, I think there was some optimism looking forward to the future. I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it's kind of an interesting time. Um, <laughs> you know, during the what the two thousand eight to twenty ten time frame, it's like. Believe it or not, the large cabin business jets did pretty well. So the Gulf Streams. That's interesting. Um, you would think, oh, financial crisis. You know, it's like everyone got hammered. And that really wasn't the case. Um, it was more of the low-end, personal, small business kind mm-hmm. of jets that got hammered. That has completely turned around. So now the um, the lighter end of the jet segment, light to mid, to mid, is strong. Wow. That's the, it. it is different. And the big cabin is weak. And then... Um, I know Gulfstream and some others had have retooled their line in yeah. the past couple of years yeah. to reflect some of that. That's right. So so what you find as a result is that the well, let me see. Let's start with jets just cuz I mentioned it. 
the you know the industry talks about two things shipments and billing business jets were down about eight percent year over year but business jet billings were way down and that reflects that of course you know lighter jets are cheaper and oh, jets I get are it now. more expensive i gotcha so that uh that's essentially a bad news situation for the industry let me see. If we look back up, uh, helicopters aren't doing great. They think it's the oil gas sector, obviously. Now, can I ask a question about helicopters? Is it turbine or piston or Bo- both? Both. Okay. And, I mean, they do report it separately, but in this case, um, we mentioned both. Okay. Um, that was down about 5%, which is really uh, not bad. I'm sorry, no. That was down 17%. Okay. 17%. So that's significant. That's that is. deliveries. That is. They think that's going to rebound a little bit. And then uh, pistons... Uh, we're down about 5%, which okay. is really not too bad. No, it's not. I'm just going to guess that you know, part of that deal is that uh, on the piston market, even a new plane is, is pretty expensive. Yes. And we talked uh, at the last podcast, we talked a little bit about some other uh, less expensive piston options out there that people might consider the, um, what, the American Champion yeah. line. And yeah. then we talked a little bit about the malls from Georgia. And um, but it's a tough deal if you're looking at eight hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand for a new single. Yeah, and what's interesting actually is that the billings. I'm looking for it in the story now. Okay. So, but the billings were up. So does that mean that the aircraft themselves are a little bit more expensive? You although got it. we sold a few less. Yeah. But now part That's of that exactly right. part of that is the are the avionics that are involved now, which are, are kind of expensive to get going. Although they are coming down in price. Yeah. And um, and we're looking at more advanced avionics with ADSB coming on board and just gosh, it's less than three years now. Yeah. And and then that will in turn lead to you know even safer skies. Mm-hmm. So you you never know. I mean things could be looking on the up and up. Yeah. Well, so here you go. So the so billing so shipments are down about five percent. Billings are up nine percent. And of course they interesting manufacturers say, hey, that's great, right? We made more money. I don't see how that's sustainable. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me that you're going to have fewer units but higher price per unit. It's like at a certain point, that balance just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, you really need to come together and have it be like an even keel. Yeah, I would, I would think. Yeah, and so it's um, that worries me. And and you know, of course, for them it's good because short term they're making profits. But I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on that because I I, I I I don't think that's necessarily a good news story. But but there was cautious optimism. There was. <laughs> there really was. Yeah, and. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that GAM in particular, the manufacturers, I think they have to be happy about right now. They were um, uh, Duncan, which is the, the uh, maintenance refurb and overhaul shop. Okay. MRO. Yeah. yeah. Uh, major jet MRO shop. They uh, they said that they're actually the day of the like after the election, their bookings skyrocketed. They did. Yeah. And so whether that so people are optimistic about the future. Yes. Whether That's um, cool. that is because of who was elected president or just because the election was over and their certainty as a result, it was it's really interesting. And they said basically they got they got hammered right afterwards. That's it. That is interesting. And along those same lines. Now, uh, for the podcast listeners who might not know exactly what gamma is. Yeah. Do we need to give them a, a quick a primer on that? Yeah, so General Aviation Manufacturers Association, it's um, what you would think means sort of all manufacturers. Um, and that's, I, from a member perspective, that's generally true. But they, they their big report is only on certified, I, I think there's one LSA, let's maybe, but uh, let's just say certified 
aircraft. We're talking about the Pipers, Cessnas, yes. Moonies, Cirruses. The big ones. Yeah. The Gulfstreams. Yeah. Um, it actually does go up to like Boeing business jets. Gulfstream, Cessnas, and the and yeah, then now the we got up. a couple of new VLJs coming on. We got yes. the Cirrus jet coming online this year. Yep. Got the Honda jet. Yep. So all that stuff goes into that gamma report. Right. And um, and also avionics manufacturers are part of that, and the engine manufacturers as well. So they're members, but they don't. But Gamma doesn't report on it oh, like okay. that. And so, like that Duncan MRO stuff, that's not reflected there. Oh, um, which I think is interesting because it's like the the industry is clearly moving to to an aftermarket refurbishment yeah, kind of model. Just talked about ADSB. Yeah, everyone's you know on yeah. board with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Gamma kind of reflects that in the next couple of years. They did add. They just added. Um, electric standards electric okay. aircraft standards oh, yeah. and so they yeah. they definitely see that coming on but they're really optimistic about the part 23 changes exactly um, a little bit easier to get things going yep safer and they also have a couple of this is stuff that's really in the weeds but but does met you know sort of um tangentially affects us where um you know the fisdo right where it's like if you're part of one FISDO, there might be one set of standards, but if you're part of another FISDO, there might be another i've been involved in that directly have you when i had my mooney yeah what happened uh, well, I needed to uh, get in touch with the FISDO about um, uh, some prop maintenance. Okay. And one had one view of what should be done, and another had another view. Of course, neither one was the view of Hartzell, which was, <laughs> <laughs> and neither one. And between the three, it, it really didn't take into account that I was just a you know single, single aircraft owner operator myself, and yeah. they were kind of looking at standards as if I was a part 135 or something like that. It was just kind okay. of hand, but. That's a perfect example. It is. So they so Gamma's working on that because now that's you uh-huh. and that's you trying to make this one decision, write this one check. Right. Imagine these companies that are spending millions of dollars and have to make huge investments. Good point. They need one set of standards. Yeah. Um, they need one set that applies across the board because other uh, it's crazy. There's no way that they can work with every uh, aircraft certification office or uh, every sort of region. It's like they need a common set. And so they're working they they call, I, they have some specific name for it, but basically they're working for a consistent standard. Gamma across. is yeah, I got you. Yeah, because the the Fistos have sort of a personality between each one. Yeah, and, and that's the same case with the aircraft certification offices and everything else. And I've heard I've heard uh, you know I was a member of the Mooney uh, Digest list for a long time yeah. when I had a Mooney, and then uh, there were certain places that that list members would recommend certain regions of the country that list members would recommend Mooney people go to if they needed this, that, and the other done. Because yeah. they knew that the, the, you know, the FAA reps in that area were yeah. a little, little bit more open-minded about certain things. Yeah. Which is interesting. And that might go back to if the folks on the street, the feet on the street, if they're the uh, FAA folks, the FISTO folks, if they have more uh, hands-on experience in a certain make and model mm-hmm. versus if they don't. Yeah. So um, yeah. there might be people who are very specialized in, the, you know, in, in this, that, and the other. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. So, so they're working on that. They're working on, uh, you know, the this idea of um, reciprocal agreements between different countries. So for manufacturers, that's a big deal. And that actually, would simplify things a lot. It would. We're we're talk, we'll talk about that in a minute with HAI. But um, but yeah, essentially, if you certify something with the FAA, EASA will give you um, that reciprocity without having to go. They talk. They have these horror stories about like. Okay, you go through all the engineering with the FAA, and it's completely bought off on, and then you go to EASA or vice versa, and you have to 
essentially redo everything Re-invent you've already doing. the wheel. Yeah, and it's like they that's think like it's, twice it's crazy. or twice as much money. Yeah. So really, from a manufacturer standpoint, that's a hindrance in, a, in a big way. Absolutely. And then uh, then they have to pass the cost on to the individual. Yeah. And so really, it would be I would think it would be a lot more efficient, and a little bit better to to have one set of yes. standards. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So. I, yeah, cautious optimism. I would say is a, is a good uh, good statement for okay. it. Okay, the so. gamma report. Yeah. Okay, so I briefly mentioned HAI. Yeah, and um, that is stands for uh, Helicopter Association International. There you go. Um, yearly, so, yearly expo. Yeah, the the one big rotocraft show of the year. Uh, it's going on actually just wrapping up as we record this. Mm-hmm. So we get a couple of pieces of news. There wasn't a lot coming out of it, although they were. Uh, I did read exhibitor wise were way up. Oh, so, that's good. Yeah, so that's healthy. Uh, they're in Dallas this year, so but a couple of interesting pieces have come out. You know, one of the things that came out of that was um, the ATI uh, president Matt Zucaro, or is it Zucaro? Yeah, yeah. He said that um, that it, there's some exciting technology coming together because of the emerging drone market. Hmm. So uh, thinking about helicopter operators and helicopter pilots. You know, there is some crossover between helicopter operations and the quadcopter drone operations. Yeah, definitely. So the and especially when you're looking at the commercial end of it and the jobs that helicopter operators do and helicopter pilots do, like they're inspecting uh, power lines and things like that. And a lot of the drones can do that too. Mm-hmm. So he said that um, the jobs and the work that they're going to do are, are currently done by helicopters. It's basically a crossover with with drone operators. Mm. So he saw that as a, a, a win-win situation for helicopter operators and helicopter pilots. That basically said. You know, tell your clients that you can do the drone stuff too. If you know how to fly a helicopter, you might as well be able to fly a drone. Yeah, it is. Um, I think a lot of people are—they're obviously worried about jobs, uh, yeah. pilot jobs, and you know, somebody who learns to fly a helicopter doesn't necessarily want to learn then to you know retrain to go fly a drone. But uh, it's interesting. Things are—they're definitely changed. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we were at the show, and you'd ask a, a manufacturer, "It's like, hey, what are you doing about drones?" And they said, "Eh, nothing." Nothing. Right. And, um, and basically, the ship left the station before people got on board with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, I think, though, what people are finding is just like what he's saying, it, they can be complementary. Well, it's interesting. And I know that um, having talked to a couple of helicopter pilots that do the power line inspections, that mm. is extremely dangerous it work. Is. It really is. Now, I get it. It's, you know, Five hundred to thousand dollars an hour to operate a helicopter like that, and a drone you could do it for you know a fifth of the cost or mm-hmm. less. But nonetheless, I would I would think the human safety factor is actually kind of uh, something to think about. Yeah, um, we read all the you know not all the time, but we read occasionally about the helicopter skids getting tangled up in the wires, and it's, that results in a tragedy. And uh, you don't want to read about stuff like that. Yeah. So integrating the the drone folks into those kind of operations where it's beneficial mm-hmm. in one way, either uh, for the, for the power line folks or pipelines or whatever they're inspecting, and also maintaining safety, I think that could be a good thing. Yeah, so. I agree. And I mean, when you think about it, it's like the helicopter. A lot of people get into it because they want to fly, but really, it's a service provider. Totally. Um, and so you're just talking about a different tool, same service, different tool. Now, you can't do stuff with a drone that we can currently do with a helicopter, like rescue people that yeah. are stranded. Yeah. And, so you got to have both, right? you so, got to have that. And then yeah. all the EMT stuff, which yeah. I, I think highly of them, and such dangerous work, and so important yeah. you know, to have, uh, have medevacs and, and things like that. But, uh, but there are other things that a drone could do that are less taxing mm-hmm. and, and a lot safer for, for folks involved. Yeah. So we're, 
you know, flying over uh, maybe in the future, I think we'll see more densely populated areas. That's and, something FAA has to address that. Yeah. And they're wrestling with that right now. Yeah. Uh, noise sure. where noise might be a concern and privacy. Yeah. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how a lot of that stuff shakes out, but, um, I, I agree with them. I, I think they're complimentary, but other good news at HAI, you were telling me right before the show started a little bit about, about Bell's new offering. Yeah. So this can, this is a little confusing, but so again, this reciprocity thing, the, the 505, um, what they used to call the jet ranger X or next generation jet ranger. I don't know. A number of years ago, Bell stopped producing the jet ranger. The, um, now we're talking about like the 206 or the 407? Yep, 206. Yeah, pretty popular model. Yeah, the the Huge. popular model. Yeah, I've been in those a ton of times. Yeah. For photography, photojournalism, all exactly. the time. They are the workhorse. photograph the Peachtree Road Race start from a, a Bell 206. Yep, they yeah. are the workhorse of the light helicopter world. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of them are, are getting a little long in the tooth. And so... Customers came back to Bell and said, no, we want this back. Yeah. And, uh, and Bell went through a very lengthy process to uh, essentially redevelop the, the 206. Now it's called the 505, uh-huh. the, you know, the new Jet Ranger. And so um, Bell, through their factory in Canada, certified it uh, okay. late last year. Okay. And they delivered the first one at HAI to an American customer this year. Well, that's good news. It's awesome. That's great. So it's in the field. And so I was scratching my head because I thought, well, no, wait a second. I don't think the thing is FAA certified yet. So they, they delivered actually with Canadian registration. Okay. So it's got a Canadian registration yeah. number on it. Yeah. But you could still fly it in the U.S., yeah. I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would think they delivered it with a, a temporary, uh, you know, easy to peel off decal, I would hope. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you could put on an N number. An N number. When that happens. Yeah. yeah. Which they think will be in the next uh, soon. Next that couple is of months. cool. That's exciting. We looked yeah. at a picture of that of that five hundred five. It looks like a jet ranger, but with like a pointy nose, mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And you were telling me it has a little bit different uh, engine configuration. Yeah, it's a new engine. It's the uh, yeah turbo mecha engine, uh, yeah. the two R. And uh, let's Di- see, digital cockpit for yeah, sure. G one thousand. But they use the same drive system, and I I don't quote me on this. I think the same rotor blades. I think. And for a helicopter, that's the hard stuff to certify. Right, you don't want to re-engineer something that's worked for three, four decades, decades already. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The um, those two S six is the Jet Ranger and the and the the Long Ranger. Yeah, those were two that we used a lot in Atlanta to uh, to cover news events. Yep, and a very stable platform for mm-hmm. for photo folks and video yeah. folks. Yeah, and a lot of TV stations use those aircraft as they well. Do. Yeah. So I see a lot of a lot of usage there, and they're popular. Mechanics know how to work on them. Yeah. So I would say uh, breeding familiarity would probably help the industry in general. Yeah. So yeah. they've got I know a couple of hundred orders for these five hundred fives, and uh, so first one out the door, it's cool. That's pretty neat. So now I haven't uh, quizzed you on this, but I'm just curious about it. Has, did Robinson? Uh, announce anything not trying to put you on the no spot. no nothing big um you know they've got the 66 their turbine um yeah. and their newest product is this um they call it the r44 cadet uh-huh. which robinson they've got their uh, they have an obsession i mean a, a total total obsession about weight and keeping their helicopters as light as possible and so they basically stripped out the back seats. So the cadet is like a trainer. Yeah. But it's a, as big as a four-person. Yeah. It's the 44, just lighter. Huh. Um, and so has more utility as a trainer, better hot and high, That's you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I know UND has taken a couple, uh, at least one, for their training program. And they've got a couple more out there. And so it, 
Robins, they, they're amazing. I mean, they just they know how to you know exploit these tiny little gaps in the market. And I, I like I like their uh, their models. Yeah, um, I, I've spent about a week in an R twenty two covering a flood in South Georgia, <laughs> and, that, and that was one reason why. Um, like a couple of months ago, when I decided I want to take a couple of helicopter lessons, I really do want to pursue that further. Yeah, but that was one reason why I wanted to do that. Ian was to learn, you know, how to control the helicopter mm-hmm. after you know watching someone for for so long. I just wanted to know what was going on. Yeah, but I, I don't have a problem flying that particular. Um, helicopter i know that in the you know that there's some specific training needs that have to be met and uh, that's because of the weight um it has a very low inertia rotor system a light rotor system and so you know not to get into all the specifics but if you lose the engine and you have to auto rotate and blah 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 so yeah it's um complicated yeah and so what you'll find is there's there is a crew of people speaking of the jet ranger Uh who it's like if they've flown jet rangers do not let me get in a they Robinson. They will not. They're adamant about that. They are. They really are. Well, the Jet Ranger is like, I'm so, I'm going to guess. So the Jet Ranger is like, when you get out of a Volkswagen Beetle and into like something like a Lincoln, mm-hmm. you know, or a nice BMW. <laughs> that's a, you don't want to go back? There, there's your Jet Ranger. Yeah. It's like, it handles well, feels good, everything's in the right spot. And I, and from a performance standpoint, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can momentarily let go of the controls, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that people are letting go. But you could, let's say, of the of the of the cyclic, they they can of the collective certainly, right. and you can uh, to, to punch up a radio, uh, yeah, or something like that. They're more the a little R, more stable. In R twenty two, I asked my instructor JP. I said, "Hey JP, so what happens if I sneeze and my headset flies off?" He goes, <laughs> "You land, <laughs> and then you put it back on." Yeah. So the po- point being, you know, this uh, smaller smaller vehicle and uh, and much more uh, conducive to to uh, t- twitchiness yeah I guess, and you don't yeah. want to ever let go of anything yeah it's funny because the robinson people would say they're like ah the jet ranger people they're babies it's like yeah <laughs> robinson's just as good just as capable uh it's just less expensive which is smart it's lighter which is smart yeah um i don't know i you know whatever you're I, starting I, to see a lot more of the r44s in the marketplace doing yeah. tours and yes and, that's uh, true things like that that's true so. and and that's the thing that the 22 has done is it's brought an entire generation of helicopters to people who wouldn't otherwise have been able to afford it they are able to afford the training yeah as well and i think so. that's important yeah um, so yeah anyway it's a, i don't i don't want to get it that's like the pitch power you know pitch ferris be powerful right. that, the robinson uh you know sort of jet ranger debate yeah. is the, kind of the same it's like a you know i don't want to touch it well maybe we have some <laughs> podcast listeners that want to weigh in they could let us know yeah right their favorite yeah all right so that that's mostly the news for the week we haven't talked about the guest yet oh man we were supposed to talk about that earlier yeah i know we had we had too much fun so uh, but the guest, this is, uh, I'm really excited about this show. Yeah. I may have a personal interest in it. Yeah, you were uh, personally involved in it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk this week to Eric Norber of Cuba Handling. And so he handles folks that are entering Cuba. Yes. The general aviation pilots. Yes. Um, that is true. And so that's obviously kind of a new development, yeah. being able to fly to Cuba. Yeah. But Eric's been at this for a long time because he, prior to them easing restrictions and being able to go to GA, being able to go GA to Cuba, he was doing trips for people who could go down through one of the other exemptions. So he's been operating in Cuba for oh. a long time. And it, another exemption could be someone on a medical mission. Uh, journalism was one yes. of the deals. Education was one of the deals. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I've been to Cuba a few times yeah. as well. And then and certainly you could go. Yeah. But now general aviation is still a little bit like the wild west out there right yeah so you can go you could you know if you've got a 172 you uh-huh. could very easily make this trip however you can't just get in the airplane and go there mm-hmm. is some preparation you have to do uh and that's true of any i mean 
not only the the GA portion of this, but also the trip itself to be able yeah. to meet the, the embargo still in place. You right. still have to meet one of the exemptions, but they're easier to meet now. Yeah. And Eric's company helps you do that. So he's been involved in this for quite a while then. Yes. So he's got the ins and outs nailed down. Yeah. And, and I've never talked to anybody who has more knowledge of how Cuba operates, how the system operates, how to get there and back, how to make sure that you're like, you know, straight on the law, uh, the whole deal. So basically it's from A to Z, they can help you out. And so, you know, we talk a little bit about what his company does, but more so we talk a lot about what it's like when you're there. Um, what is Cuba like? Uh, what's the experience like? Folks what's are so down inquisitive like? of that. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we, we haven't been. Yeah. A lot um, of us. So uh, again, this this goes to our destinations month. There's a story about Cuba in the magazine and, and pilot this month in the March issue. So make awesome. sure to what, check that out. Cool it, photos too. Lots of old cars. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and we'll talk to Eric and see what he has to say about it. So Eric, it's it's great talking to you again. Um, nice to connect again. Tell me, um, what are you up to? What what are you doing? Hi, Ian. Great to talk with you again as well. And uh, what we're doing is uh, what I'm doing is essentially staying incredibly busy helping general aviation uh, pilots fly their aircraft to Cuba these days. It's uh, it's taking up most of our time. So now, obviously, this is something that people are just recently been able to do. But you've been you've been uh, going to or, or operating in Cuba for quite some time. Yeah, we've um, we've been operating in Cuba since 1990. So for 27 years, I've been helping people to legally travel to Cuba, and only in the last uh, about year, just over about a year, has it been legal for people to fly their own private aircraft to Cuba. So prior to that, we were helping them get to Cuba by other chartered flights or airline flights um, legally. But now people can legally fly their own aircraft to Cuba, which which opens up a whole new world for. Uh, general aviation pilots. Okay, so before we get kind of into the details and, and what it's like to fly down and everything else, just help set the stage for me because um, I, I think, you know, people read headlines and they see it's like, hey, you can go to Cuba and anybody can go to Cuba and it's really no problem. And so tell us it and distill it for me. What really has changed and what can you now do that maybe you couldn't do in the past? It's a great question, Ian. Anytime we start talking about Cuba, I always have to tell people that it's a, as the Cuban people themselves always say when you ask a, a question, they always like to say it's very complicated because nothing to do with Cuba is really very straightforward. There's always a little bit more detail than meets the eye. So to answer your question, it's a little bit complicated. And at the same time, it's not that complicated. So what has changed? President Obama, about a year ago, a little more, uh, reinterpreted the rules so that um, aircraft that are registered in the United States are absolutely free to fly to Cuba. So anybody who owns an airplane, rents an airplane, um, they can now fly down there and have an experience in Cuba. Some of the challenges, though, are that you still have to comply with uh, regulations that are still in place with the Treasury Department. For example, and this is one of the areas of confusion, you can't go to Cuba for the purpose of pure tourism. You have to be traveling to Cuba to engage in activities that meet with a requirement that is approved by the Treasury Department. And essentially, most of the activities are going to or may look and feel a little bit like tourism, but they can't be pure tourism. So 
that's something that pilots have to keep in mind. Okay, so explain that difference to me, because we know, you know, some of the previous people that were, some of the previous U.S. citizens, they were able to go maybe on a government trip or a mission or through journalism. But now, kind of everyday citizens do have the opportunity. And it's like, we say it's not tourism, but, you know, you see pictures of people riding in uh, convertibles and touring cultural sites. And I mean, it, it kind of looks like tourism. So what is, what's the difference? So it's, it's, the difference is in the wording. It, it effectually is the same thing as tourism, but the difference I think is by and large in the wording. Tourism is not legal for Americans as a purpose for your visit to Cuba. But what is under the current rules uh, is going to Cuba to have what's called people to people exchange with Cuban people on the street. So um, a little further definition to that is meaningful interactions with Cuban people. So what one person might view as tourism, for example, walking around on the street and taking pictures of sites and interacting with people in Cuba, by another interpretation, that is also having meaningful interactions with Cuban people or having a people-to-people exchange uh, while you're in Cuba. So hmm. the wording of it is different. The activity may look essentially the same. That's that's really the difference that we're talking about. It's it's a little bit of a semantics difference. Okay. So, you know, that I've seen that on some of these like uh, you know, Caribbean travel lists or or um, you know, like travel and leisure kind of lists, they'll say like some of these Cuban beaches are the best in the world. So if I want to go plant myself on the beach for a week, it sounds like unless I do it with a bunch of Cuban people around me, maybe maybe that's not a possibility. Well, that's a that's a good example. People ask me all the time, can I can I go to the can I go to Cuba to go to the beach? And if you're simply going to the beach to lay on the beach and get a suntan, I don't think anybody could make a compelling argument that that's not just pure plain old tourism. On the other hand, if you told me uh, if you said. Eric, this is Ian, and I'd like to fly my airplane to Cuba, and, and I'd like to go to a beach where I can have some meaningful interactions with Cuban people and talk about life in Cuba, maybe international relations, how have things changed between the dynamics uh, with the dynamics of the U.S. and Cuba. Now you're talking about engaging in a permitted activity, and you can do that at the beach. Okay. Huh. Interesting. All right. So I guess the bottom line is, headline is, the embargo is still in place. Um, this is not a free flow. You can't, I mean, as much as maybe the major airlines would have you believe you can jump on a flight and go down with no consequences. That's, that's really not the case. There is some due diligence that you have to, that you have to do. It sounds like. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And and I think it's a perception issue because the airlines are trying to sell tickets, which we all understand. And if you click and buy a ticket on an airline to visit Cuba, you will get to a, a subsequent page on that airline's website where it then tells you, well, not so fast. You have to have an itinerary or activities in Cuba that are compliant with the embargo. So there, there's a, an appearance that it's kind of open door and anybody can go, but there's a little bit more you need to know. Your activity or your itinerary in Cuba still does have to meet certain requirements. It's really not that complicated to make sure that your activities in Cuba are compliant, but you do need to make sure they are. Huh, okay. All right. All right. So that, that that's kind of the way that the world is today. So with that kind of out of the way, it's like, uh, why why go? Um, and is it worth it? I mean, it's, it, there is a little bit of work involved. Um, you've been going, I think you said since, uh, 99 operating down there. What do you love about it? Why do you go? Uh, since 1990, actually. And oh, I'll tell 90. you that I, when I first, uh, when I first went to Cuba in 1990, Cuba was in a, in a period of intense transformation. The, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union had just ended their support for Cuba. They were going through their own economic crisis and reform in the Soviet Union, and they essentially stopped supporting Cuba. So Cuba, as a result, was going through some intense 
financial uh, economic challenges. So it was, a, it was a period of great change in Cuba back in 1990. When I, when I first went there, I found that the people were, in spite of the fact that they were going through a difficult economic period, the people were incredibly warm. The culture was, was just unbelievably welcoming of visitors, especially American visitors who they didn't really know that much about. And, and really what we've got is a country that's, that's barely 90 miles south of our own country, and there's been this perception or reality that for each of our country's citizens, the other country's been off limits for a long time. So I didn't know what to expect. And when I got there, I was welcomed, and I, and I found that I, I absolutely fell in love with the culture, the history, the architecture, the people, the food, really overall the spirit of life down there, the joie de vie, if you will. So um, I fell in love with the country and, and made it my work to find ways to help other Americans to go down and visit Cuba. And now I'm, I, I couldn't be more thrilled that we're able to fly our aircraft down there. So um, why would we want to go visit? It's a rich new culture. It's a very Spanish culture, uh, as opposed to a uh, maybe people might think of going somewhere close to Florida as, as more like a Bahamian or a Caribbean culture. On the contrary, Cuba feels much more like you've, you've landed in Madrid or Barcelona. It's a very Spanish culture, and it's just a very culturally rich and wonderful experience with um, a people that are incredibly welcoming of American visitors. Yeah, so t- tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I think there's an impression there that Cuba is fairly close to the Bahamas and, and a lot of the rest of the Caribbean islands that people know, uh, Dominican Republic and Haiti and everything else. And I mean, it's like, uh, I think there's this impression that it's a very consistent culture in that part of the world. But Cuba, I guess, feels different. So uh, did that surprise you? And 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 why do you think that is? I think you're you're mentioning that there's an impression that that you know island culture is consistent is a, is is an impression that a lot of folks have, and nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to Cuba. So Cuba is an entirely different culture than any of the other other nearby or surrounding islands. It's, uh, it's you know it's a Spanish and a culture. Live music is in the streets everywhere. The people are festive and. I will tell you that for me, people will, and, I, and this is a phrase that I've used over the years, you can you can fly about 30 minutes, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes south of Key West in a typical airplane, and by flying 30, 45 minutes south of Key West, you can travel back almost 60 years in time. Mm. So as a result of the embargo and some of the other kind of world conditions that Cuba's been in, they, their whole country was frozen in time in, in late 1958, 1959. So here's an island that really takes you back in time to a different era. And there's, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of interesting aspects of visiting a place that seems frozen in time. It takes you back to where, you know, the culture is one where families were, are, are more closely integrated in the, the culture, the people themselves are much more supportive of each other. And, you know, we in the States tend to be a little bit more into all of our electronic devices. And, you know, we've, we've kind of moved on technologically very fast and very far. Going to Cuba is like visiting someplace that's been a little bit uh, maybe going back in time, a little bit stopped in time. There's a really wonderful aspect uh, about visiting Cuba in terms of the, the way their culture and their um, the warmth of their culture reflects a different era. That's hmm. probably a better way to put it. Yeah. One thing you hit on there that I think is really interesting that, that there's a lot of discussion around is that idea of politics and 
you know, with the revolution and, and uh, how that influences life there. And I, I think that people, you know, maybe they, they want to go and they don't want to get involved in the politics and they, they just want to sort of enjoy the people and the experience. But it, it feels to me like politics is in a way or, or the sort of the politics of their lives is, is ingrained that you really can't get away from it. And that's a little different than here. That certainly surprised me when we went. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about that or if that you're used to that these days. No, I think that's accurate. That's a good observation. You know, in Cuba, Cuban people have been living under the same governmental authorities or system for, you know, more or less the last 60 years. So I think it's fair to say that uh, for the average Cuban person, government and politics are a part of their life. And, you know, in some aspects, they might view that as good. In some aspects, I, I think they see that there's opportunity for improvement or transition. And some of that improvement and transition is happening now. So when I was mentioning before that when I first went to Cuba in 1990, it was a time of intense transition. I think that ties into what we're seeing now. Cuba is now again in a period of intense transition. So since the very early 60s, when the United States formally and officially ended all diplomatic relations with the country of Cuba, it's only just a couple of years ago that President Obama sent uh, Secretary of State John Kerry down to Cuba and formally reestablished diplomatic relations with Cuba. So we now once again have an embassy and we have formal relations, and the Cuban people are very excited and very much looking forward to seeing how this new era will change the dynamics of life for them on a day-to-day basis on the island. So again, mm. an, an intense period of transition. It's a great time to visit there and feel all of the excitement in the air. So if, if somebody wants to visit and they, they feel like they've read about it and they just want to see it and experience it, but maybe don't want to support the government and, and feel like all their money is going to go towards, you know, the Castros and, and that sort of thing. Um, are, are there things they can do to, minimize that? And is that even a concern? And how do people rectify that? That's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a serious concern for a lot of folks to, for them to consider a visit to Cuba. Many people think that it's, and, and, and I think rightfully feel that they may not want to necessarily support the government of Cuba, but they do want to support the people of Cuba. And that's been a, a philosophical position that I've taken for many years as well. So there are absolutely ways to visit the island and explore and experience the culture while doing so in a way that directly supports people in Cuba as opposed to going through more official channels or governmental channels. And I'll give you a couple of real-world examples. So as opposed to staying in a typical hotel that might be a joint venture owned in part by perhaps the Cuban government, maybe with uh, a Spanish hotel chain, what I would suggest is a, a much more authentic way to see Cuba would be to go through something like an Airbnb or go through a private company like mine or, or use another means to book and stay at a private house in Cuba. There's, there's a few categories of businesses that the Cuban government have authorized that the Cuban people can, can enter into as private enterprise. So one of them is homestays, or you know, for lack of a, a more generic term, what we all call Airbnb. So that's that's a great way for people to experience Cuba and be helping directly helping the people that are they're staying with. Another way would be to support local restaurants. That's a category of business that people are allowed to go into on their own as private enterprise in Cuba, 
they can rent commercial spaces, they can, they can have employees, they can have many of the restaurants that we see in Cuba now have world-class kitchens. They're bringing in uh, famous chefs to create their menus. It, it's really quite a different scene than it was over the even, even five years ago in Cuba. So there's a great ability to visit Cuba and interact directly with the Cuban people and minimize your uh, support of more formal institutions in Cuba. You mentioned the um, the private homestays, and I, I think that's a great example of how, you know, we we here in America take for granted the way life works. You know, it's like um, you make a phone call, you give somebody your credit card number, and um, and you book a place to stay, or you go online and you enter it and you book a place to stay. Cuba's not like that. The rules of, of how you know to operate, how you know to travel, kind of go out the window especially, I think, with the homestay market. So I know we talked about this before and setting up the trip, but what uh, talk about just kind of a little bit of the challenges that go along with that and how it's, it's just a good example of how life is, is quite different there. Well, life is quite different. And I, I would say the primary way that we see that life is different in Cuba, they are not an internet-connected or an internet-savvy society. They've not really had mobile devices that have data available. They've, you know, the average Cuban or most Cubans don't have any access to the internet in their home. And as a result of that, they've not evolved culturally or from a business perspective, the same in a parallel way that we have in the States. Like, just like you said, in the States, as world savvy travelers, most of us would expect that we can go on TripAdvisor, we can get a hold of an email address or a website, and that with a couple of clicks and a credit card, we can assume that our plans are booked and that whatever we booked will be waiting and available when we get there. So the challenge in Cuba is when most folks don't have that sort of same connectivity to the Internet and don't look at the Internet with the same level of trust that we do when we're booking travel, um, they approach things much differently than we do. So, for example, we've we've had many stories where people might go online to a website and you know, whether it's reputable or not, even some of the most well-known ones like Airbnb, if somebody books a room um, for a homestay, maybe the proprietor of that house was able to go online a few weeks ago and post the availability of that house, but they haven't been able to get online in the last few weeks to update that it's no longer available. So we've heard stories of people arriving in Cuba to get to their Airbnb, and then the owner happens to say, well, I'm really sorry, but we accidentally double booked the place because we weren't able to update the status online. But don't worry, my cousin has a place and you'll be well taken care of. By Cuban standards, that's a completely acceptable solution. But for a lot of American visitors or, or any world visitors may not feel that that's equally as acceptable to them. They booked a specific property and that's the one they wanted to stay in. So there's some cultural differences there. We, you know, my company, for example, we've addressed that in a way where we have staff on the ground in Cuba. When folks book a homestay through us, my staff go directly to the property, pay in advance to the homeowner, and then that way everything is directly confirmed and there's no ambiguity about it. So, you know, we've we've found ways to address the lack of internet connectivity in Cuba, but um, they're very old-fashioned ways, like actually walking over to somebody's house, shaking their hands, hmm. looking at them eye to eye, and handing them the money to pay for a homestay. So in that way, Cuba is very much a face-to-face -face business culture, and they're not at all an Internet-based business culture. I, you know, it also, I think, speaks to an, the infrastructure a little bit. You know, people know the American cars, which uh, many times serve as taxis. Um, but in flying down, uh, you know, in this day and age, you go to an international airport, in this case Havana, and I think you expect 
kind of world-class FBOs and this great service and, and everything else. What do you get when you arrive at uh, Terminal 5 in Havana? So you know, world-class service uh, and FBOs, it's an interesting perception that it doesn't really exist in Cuba. I, I Another term that I tell people frequently is that Cuba is kind of a third-class country with a first-class culture. The, the culture of the people, the warmth of the people, the history there, it's all first-class. They're just fantastic. But the infrastructure of the country is really not at the first world level. So what do you exp- what are you going to see when you land at the airport in Havana or at other airports in Cuba? You're going to be marshaled to and you'll, you'll taxi up to some aging buildings that might have been a cargo terminal in the past or some had some other purpose and have been repurposed into um, a makeshift terminal for arriving private aircraft. We have to remember that up until very recently, American-based private aircraft simply weren't flying to Cuba. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have a need for any purpose-built terminals or facilities. I know that they're looking into building those for the future, but that's going to take a good bit of time before that happens. So right yeah. now, for the for the average pilot, their experience when they when they land in Cuba, it it won't be like landing at, a, at an airport in the States where you'll find the FBO and there's going to be typical services and um, a nice lobby and um, no a free level cookies? of convenience. No free cookies, no <laughs> popcorn machine in the corner. No, it's a little bit different in Cuba, but, but you will get you know genuine warmth and you'll feel like you're being welcomed by family when you when you land there you're just not going to see the same you know polish on the on the buildings when you get there in the same type of services so yeah. it's uh it's always essential to have the right expectations when you go down to Cuba it's a it's a great it's a great place to visit you just have to adjust your um your level of expectations to what the Cuban infrastructure is able to deliver yeah i i mean i tease but it's like i you know in terms of you know, it might like you say, it might not be the shiny building and and you know the free cookies and the popcorn and the vending machines and everything else, but it's like the 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 service in that way is is just as good. The people are just as accommodating, just as eager to have you and everything else. If not more so, and I I think the folks, uh, you know, whether it's at the airport uh, when you first arrive in your aircraft or anybody you meet on the street in Cuba, whether it's walking down the sidewalk and you stop and chat with somebody, or if you're having you know lunch or a dinner in a private restaurant you'll quickly realize that everybody there is welcoming and, and wants to have you there and is eager to engage in conversations. What's, what's life like in the United States? And they'll be very, you know, very thrilled to hear that you flew an aircraft down to Cuba. That's, that's something that really hasn't existed in Cuba in the last 60 years. The concept of general or recreational aviation was really, uh, for lack of a different term, shut off when mm. the revolution happened. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of dormant pilots in Cuba that haven't been able to fly recreationally for the last 60 years. But uh, everyone there welcomes you warmly, no mm. question. So now, not to age you, but uh, as you said, you've been going there for a couple of decades. You've you've done lots of different things in the country. What, uh, what are some of your favorite sites to see, places to visit, uh, experiences to have? Well, that's a that's a great question. It's a short question. It's got a long answer. I mean, imagine <laughs> somebody said to to you, Ian, you you you've lived in America. Where should I go? Yeah, right. <laughs> where where would you even where would you even start to answer that question? Yeah, no, I can that's, tell that's you true. that the 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 capital Havana, just like most countries, is probably the the most prominent city. It's their largest population center. It's where most people visit for the first time going to Cuba. So the easy answer for me is to say 
without question, everybody visiting Cuba for the first time should go spend several days in Havana. Mm. No question. It's where the most prominent history, arts, food, culture, music, uh, architecture, all of it is in Havana. From Havana, you can easily take multiple day trips, um, and you're talking about maybe anywhere from a one to three hour drive outside of Havana and see incredibly different, see and have incredibly different experiences, different topography, landscape, different culture, go to the tobacco regions, go to um, mountainous regions, go to beachside regions. So there's a ton you can do within a couple few hours drive of Havana. But having an airplane and being able to fly within Cuba opens up a whole new set of options. So there's um, when you start moving to the east in Cuba, there's an incredibly, let's, uh, let's say, undiscovered side of the island where most tourism hasn't reached. And hmm. that's where some of the real beauty is. There's, there's caving and mountains and uh, all kinds of eco-tourism to be discovered all over the island. It's, it's really quite amazing. Oh, wow. So tell me, if somebody goes to Havana and you guys develop a trip for them, what's a typical day like? Typical day in Havana um, starts with a fantastic breakfast. Of course, it includes a great cup of Cuban coffee to get the day going. Um, And there's there's just so much history to see. So it it probably depends on the particular areas of interest of the people traveling to Cuba. For Mm -hmm. some folks, it might be um, history or it might be art. But a, a typical day, I'd say, would it would certainly include walking around in old Havana. So the old part of the city, the ancient part of the city that dates back to Christopher Columbus's time. Um, walking around in old Havana is really the epicenter of Havana. So typical day, spend part of the day walking around old Havana, exploring some of its culture and history. There's fantastic privately owned restaurants all around old Havana. There, there's even microbreweries that are popping up. It's really an evolving wow. time now in Cuba. Uh, maybe the afternoon might include a visit to Ernest Hemingway's estate in the hills overlooking Havana, a little, you know, a little retreat, if you will, um, that Hemingway had. And he lived there for longer than he lived in any of his other homes, whether it was in Key West or in Idaho. He called uh, Havana home for if memory serves, more than 30 years. So he's got wow. a beautiful estate there that's well worth visiting, you know, so so especially anybody who's a literature fan or a history fan. And I could go on and on about art and music. There, there's just an endless list of things to do around Havana. So you've done all of these things, uh, probably more than a few times. What's uh, in, in Havana? Do you have a favorite spot, a favorite restaurant, um, a favorite place that you like to come back to? Oh, I have so many favorite places in Havana. I've got a personal favorite restaurant called Littoral, L-I-T-O-R-A-L. It's right along the seashore, and uh, the owner, Alejandro, um, he's unique among Cubans in that he has his own boat, and he has a boat captain, and they go out every morning fishing, and when they say the fresh catch of the day, they really mean the fresh catch of the day. And it's a, it's a fantastic seaside restaurant that's seafood-oriented but has a little bit of everything. Uh, it caters both to local Cubans and to tourists, so a little bit of something for everybody. And it's in a, it's in a renovated home that was his grandmother's home right on the, the waterfront seawall called the Malacón. And it's interesting. It's only about three blocks away from the American embassy. So it's not it's not uncommon to see American staff or the American ambassador to Cuba having lunch at this restaurant. It's um, it's it's that close to their location and it's that great of a restaurant. Oh, cool. Yeah, very cool. 
And uh, what about sites? I mean, um, you you know, you've probably toured the uh, cigar factory a thousand times. Um, is that still interesting, or do you like to go to Hemingway's house, or um, what do you feel like is is just fascinating every time you go back? Yeah, I, I I can never see enough of the the culture inside the cigar factory. To me, the cigar factories themselves are they they represent the history of Cuba. They're this unique handmade product. Um, it really was refined in Cuba, and it's still done the way it's been done. They're still being made the way they've been made for hundreds of years by hand. And they're, the, the whole process, to me, represents equal part art and science and individual talent. So it's this great combination of those factors all put together in this product that's had this mystery around it. The, the Cuban cigar is, you know, arguably the best cigar in the world. Mm-hmm. And now the, you know, the doors are open. We can fly down there and we can get a tour of a Cuban cigar factory and see how they're made. Uh, take it a step further. You can go out to the tobacco uh, region, the growing regions, and visit with plantation, uh, tobacco plantation farmers. And uh, if you really want to see how they're made, uh, you start at the at the site where the plants are grown and learn from the farmer how they're harvested and dried and cured and then they're shipped to Havana and then then you can visit the cigar factory and see how they're made step by step in the factory. So I still find wow. magic in the cigar factory every time I go. Wow, fantastic. So if somebody is a real cigar lover, they can they can see it from, you know, seed to seed to stogie, I guess. Uh, you know, from, or, or from seed to smoke. <laughs> yeah. You want to take it uh, all the way to the end. And, and, and I'll tell you, you don't even have to be such a fan of the Cuban cigar as a smoker. I, you know, I, I smoked cigars years ago. I, I barely smoke them anymore. But I'll tell you that just to see the process and, and the, the care and the art and the science and all that goes into making them, to me, that there's just quite a bit of magic in it. And um, even if you're not a cigar aficionado per se, the experience of seeing the factory and touring the factory, you really do feel like you're witness to history when you're walking around in the factory. It's, it's something. Cool. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to turn to the flying part. You're a pilot. We didn't say that up front. Uh, ATP rated, I think, and designated examiner. So you're, you're well qualified uh, for, to help people get down there to fly themselves down there. So describe the flight for me. I mean, in terms of something that somebody might understand us based, I mean, we said going to an international airport at year, you know, you're, you're based near Orlando. Is this like flying into MCO or uh, how, would, how would you describe it? I think that a lot of general aviation pilots, and, and I might be stereotyping here, but there's, I think for many folks, there's a sense that if I'm going to fly my Cessna, my Cherokee, my Bonanza, whatever my small GA airplane is, I'm very comfortable flying in and around the local municipal airport, but don't ask me to fly into a, a, a class Bravo airport of, you know, a major airline airport. So there's all, I think that many folks have a certain trepidation about that. Now you add in that we're going to another country and we're going to a major airline service airport in another country. There's a tendency to have a little bit of trepidation about that as well. So as much as I have, you know, let's say years of experience in airline and you know, corporate aircraft, corporate jet flying under my belt, I'm, I'm still a general aviation pilot at heart, and my favorite airplane to fly is the Cub. Flying into Cuba is really quite simple. There's a little bit of paperwork and process involved. You have to do some planning up front, just like any international flight. You've got some customs considerations and some flight planning considerations, uh, but it's not really that difficult. I would tell you that some of the top uh, things to consider, and, and by the way, my company helps people go through the whole flight planning process to take the 
the mystery or the fear out of it, and, and we help folks through the whole planning process. But the main things to remember are you do have to fly to Cuba on an IFR flight plan. It's not a U.S. issue. It's that the Cuban Aviation Authority, essentially their FAA, they don't allow VFR flying to or from or within Cuba. Mm -hmm. So any airplane flying to, from, or within has to be on an IFR flight plan. So I think that's the first, maybe most important thing we tell people is that both the pilot and the aircraft have to be uh, capable of flying to Cuba IFR. Beyond that, there's a few differences. When you when you check the ATIS as you're approaching Havana, you'll notice that they issue the barometric pressure in hectopascals. So it's it's slightly different. It's an international airport, and they do use uh, more European-style procedures there that are a little bit different from American air traffic control procedures but not difficult, not different enough to cause anybody any need to worry. Hmm. It's not a terribly busy airport. Uh, the controllers speak perfect English. So flying down there really is quite a pleasure. And uh, once you land, you taxi off, and you're given taxi instructions over to a particular terminal, usually Terminal 5, where marshalers are waiting to park your airplane. And then there's a little bit of paperwork and customs to go through because you're arriving at a, at a new country. So you, of course, got to have your passport and that brings up another consideration. There's some advanced planning to be done. Uh, everybody going needs to have a visa to enter Cuba. So that's mm. definitely an important consideration. Mm. So what what's the limiting factor of all this? I mean, and, and uh, you mentioned IFR. Um, the visa, I mean, some countries it can take months for that to come through. Um, I know uh, Cuba, there's uh, even before we were allowed to fly there, there was overflight permits. And so there's, there's permitting that goes... Um, is this stuff happened fairly quickly, or is it like we got to plan months in advance? So, yeah, there's there's a few paperwork considerations. Everybody flying to Cuba does need a visa to enter Cuba. The aircraft itself needs a landing permit, just like if you were flying over Cuba. Uh, it, you mentioned you used to need, and you still do need, an overflight permit if, you, if you're just transitioning through their airspace but not landing. Yeah. It's the same same agency in Cuba that issues the permit, whether it's a landing permit or an overflight permit. Hmm. Um, and uh, there's a few other things that you need to coordinate adva- in advance, and, and they're all generically bundled into the term handling, um, kind of an internationally used term for all of the services that your aircraft might need when you land in a different country. And that, that could include facilitating customs, parking of your aircraft, everything that you need, they generically call handling. So um, all of your handling has to be prearranged, including your landing permit. Uh, it is very difficult for uh, any individual or any pilot to line up and arrange those things in advance on their own. And you know, there's, that's essentially why I created my company. So we do that for folks and we help them through that whole process. That way, when you land in Cuba, they're waiting for you. And, you know, there's, there's no angst about uh, wondering, did I set everything up? Have I remembered all the details? So we, we help folks with that, but it, it is fair to say that there there are some things that need to be prearranged before you fly to Cuba. On, on the U.S. side, it's quite simple. You simply need to leave from an airport that has customs, and you have to return to an airport that has customs available. And just like any other international flight, if you were flying to Canada, to the Bahamas, every pilot is responsible for filing EAPIS with Customs and Border Patrol, just like you would be on any other international flight. So very relatively straightforward. Flying to Cuba or planning planning a trip in your airplane to Cuba does take a little bit of advanced planning. The logistics for obtaining a permit to fly your airplane or land your airplane in Cuba, they really only take a few days 
to coordinate. Um, and, you know, we help folks do that. And 48 hours is a normal turnaround time to plan the details of getting your aircraft on the ground in Cuba. So that goes relatively smoothly and quickly. What I would tell you is the other logistics, for example, where are you going to stay in Cuba? Are we going to need any kind of transportation? Uh, is it going to be a hotel or a homestay? Those details take a quite a bit longer to organize, coordinate, and confirm. So it might only take us a few days to plan your actual flight to Cuba, but we probably need at least a few weeks to coordinate, organize, and confirm the details of your itinerary once you arrive in Cuba. So anybody thinking about traveling to Cuba, the main piece of advice I give them is uh, plan ahead. Uh, contact us soon and um, let's start talking about what you want to do in Cuba so that we've got the lead time necessary to book the housing or the itinerary content that you're looking for. You have to remember not being connected to the Internet process in Cuba can be very slow. And again, it's very face to face. So a lot of our a lot of times our staff have to literally go out and meet with folks in Cuba to book things on behalf of our clients. Hmm. OK, um, so you mentioned your company a couple of times. Um, time for a shameless plug. Uh, tell me about uh, the name, how people can find you, uh, some of the services you provide, that sort of thing. Um, I appreciate that, Ian. Uh, my company is called Cuba Handling. So we arrange handling for aircraft flying to Cuba. So cubahandling.com is the easiest way to find us. And I think the, uh, uh, I appreciate the shameless plug. What we do for folks, anybody, whether you're flying your 172 or your Cherokee all the way up to your corporate aircraft, we help the pilot to plan the entire trip. We provide the visas for folks to enter Cuba. We can arrange for hotels or private home lodging, guides, transportation, basically a one-stop shop for your entire trip to Cuba. Uh, but certainly the company was created uh, by me and with a pilot focus on everything that we do. So we're, we're really appealing directly to the folks who want to fly to Cuba, but then also to the pilot and passengers who want to have a fantastic experience while they're in Cuba. Okay, great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time. And um, I, I hope people will go. I mean, uh, you and I and, and Chris Rose went last December. I uh, thought it was an incredible experience and, and totally worth uh, the effort and, and, and the expense. I thought it was great. And so um, I hope people will check it out because it's, it's, it might sound like a little bit that you have to arrange, and it is, but um, I, I really feel like it's an unusual and unique experience. Ian, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, Cuba, to me, in a nutshell, it, there's a little bit of work involved in setting up a flight or a trip down to Cuba. It's not that much work. I think you'd agree it's well worth the effort. It's like discovering a, a whole new culture, and it's very close to the States. It's a very easy flight. So to all of the GA pilots out there, I would suggest take a look and consider it as a possible new way to use your aircraft and explore a, a whole new destination. Great. Okay. Thanks, Eric. All right, Ian. Thank you. All right, David. So, um, I told you, Eric, I mean, he, he knows it all on Cuba. The guy is really knowledgeable. My bathing suit is packed and yeah. ready to roll. <laughs> i got a two-way handheld just in case. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go ahead and get one of those little life preserver things, make sure I'm safe. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm ready to roll and uh, have some mojitos in Cuba. Yes, yeah, you got to have a mojito, um, or if you're a Hemingway fan, a daiquiri, because that was his right. that was his thing. Although he did drink mojitos, apparently. When so. you were down there, wasn't it just so beautiful? The the El Maro, the fort over there at the end, the yes. Malacone, the yes. the seawall, beautiful. It's just something that uh, honestly, it's something that travelers would really enjoy. Yeah, and it is so so close. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we. Um, we didn't land in Key West on the way down, but we we did to clear on the way back. Yeah, and uh, it's you know it's like you get to cruising altitude. You're there for 15 minutes. You come, you descend, and you're in Key West. That's good. It's just so amazing. Oh, I like it. So well, Eric has a lot to tell us, and it's good to go by the book. Yeah, stay out of trouble. Yeah, um, not hard to do. Just make sure you pay attention. So right. All right. I think that's it. I think we've done it all. All right. So that's it for us this week. David, I'm, I'm Ian Twombly, and uh, our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis, and you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. Email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. Don't forget, we're now on iTunes and on Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Thanks for Hanger Talk. Oh!